1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Barrett Holmes Pittner about his brand new book, The Crime Without a Name, Ethnocide and the Erasure of Culture in America, published by Counterpoint on October 12th of this year. Barrett, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Great. Can you uh, start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and who inspires your work?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, my name is Bear Holmes Pittner. I'm a, a philosopher and a journalist. I'm originally from uh, the suburbs of Atlanta, and you know my my work c- comes out of I don't know. It's, it's hard to it's hard to say precisely, but I've had a an eclectic career working in film and journalism and philosophy, and and my work kind of comes a lot about my lived experiences and curiosities. And so when it comes to who inspires me and, and, and whatnot, it's it's significant, you know, authors, but also just regular everyday people and having conversations and trying to best be able to articulate uh, the world in which we live and, and how I see it. And so uh, so that's a bit about me uh, in support of the book and my ideas. I've also launched an organization called the Sustainable Culture Lab that continues, uh, what I've been working on and tries to, you know, articulate our society a little better so we can make, uh, make improvements and live in a you know good of a place as we can.
1: Thanks. I think all, all of that comes. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, thank you, Baron. I think all of that, uh, your background and experience c- comes out in your book. Um, you know, I want to focus on, you know, since this is a podcast for genocide studies, um, so much of your book that is is associated with that through your discussion of, of ethnocide and ethnocidal society and so on. Um, and so maybe start with this. Uh though it seems like there's an increasing use of the language of international human rights to describe the persecution and oppression of black communities and to call for respect for those rights, the language of genocide and ethnocide still seems to be at the periphery of these discussions. Though this is only my perception, it seems to me that people might be more likely to hear references to quote unquote white genocide. Then they would hear references to genocide or ethnocide perpetrated against people forced into slavery and their descendants. In chapter two, you discuss how in recent years, factions of the white nationalists and white supremacist movements in the U.S. have used the terminology of ethnocide. Can you talk about how such narratives seem to be able to rise to the forefront, sort of flipping the script on who are the ethnociders and who are the ethnocides? And related, you, you, relatedly, you describe America as being an ethnocidal society. What makes America an ethnocidal society?
0: Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. So, you know, first of all, ethnocide is the destruction of culture while keeping the people. And this term was coined in 1944 by Raphael Lemkin, who also created the word genocide at the same time. And so his, his vision with that was going to be that these words would be made potentially interchangeable uh, because uh, the Jewish people were a genos, a people, but also an ethnos, a nation or culture. And so he thought they would be interwoven, and over time, you know, genocide became what we know. And there's, you know, so many studies and, and groups and organizations combating it. And ethnocide kind of got forgotten. Um, in my work, I applied I apply ethnocide to the transatlantic slave trade because that was explicitly the purpose was to get African people and forcefully destroy African culture, but keep the bodies, keep the people to create. A perpetually divided society um, and then build, you know, new society in the Americas around this foundational division. And so, you know, ethnocide, um, I'd say the reason why genocide and ethnocide don't get used to talk about the Black experience is, first of all, you know, the society in which we live does not, uh, people aren't excited for words to pop up to, to articulate systemic problems um that would change a narrative of america being an exceptional or inherently good place so there's going to be less of a desire with an american discourse to define america as like potentially foundationally bad and so that's one of the reasons why i don't think genocide or ethnocide has been applied to the black experience or the indigenous experience in the us as much as as we believe it should um, at the same time, when it comes to the, the African-American experience of translating slave trade, you know, legally, you know, facets of ethnocide are like part of genocide. But the conventional understanding of genocide is that of extermination or forced removal with a, an end goal of living in a society absent the people who you have uh, committed an atrocity against. That clearly isn't the case for the United States. The United States has never aspired to live in the absence of black people. Like America intentionally was structured with the idea of including black people in the fabric of the society and just oppressing and denying African Americans of services from a foundational level. So in our conventional understanding of genocide, that doesn't really become an adequate description of the black experience. And so there's, there is an absence of language in that, Ethnocide isn't used, hasn't been used in this context up until, I believe, my book. Um, and when there isn't an adequate word to, to to accurately describe your experience, you know, tangential words that are close, those can be easily dismissed. And so, you know, the work in my book is is aspiring to really hit home on this term that describes uh not just the transatlantic slave trade but also how ethnocide impacts um Americans of all walks of life and so i think that's why it hasn't risen to the forefront you know yet i believe i believe i hope that it will after this um and so when it comes to uh white americans and talking about uh white genocide <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating flip because if you are If you have a culture in America that's based on, that's identity and survival is based around looking as though you're a European person while never being in Europe and being surrounded by the absence of Europe and people and places and food and everything that's not European. If you have that zero-sum identity that's complexion-based, everything is going to be perceived as a threat the potential of mixing or doing something that could make you not appear as if you're European is going to be a threat. And then they'll come up with language that will describe just existence as uh, incredibly dangerous. And so um, I believe that's why white uh, supremacists and people like that are trying to use the language of ethnocide to describe the the potential of uh, people of color uh, coming into america and making america less uh eurocentric as a destruction but that destruction is due to people arbitrarily giving themselves a zero-sum uh like racial identifier so i think that's kind of what what it's about
1: thanks baron i I was just going to note that uh even in terms of the the genocide convention uh colonial societies like the united states and canada Um, actively sought the omission of cultural genocide, uh, which included, of course, um, elements of ethnocide in it um, from the legal definition of of genocide. So, yeah. Um, In your afterward, I know this is sort of jumping now to the back of your book, but in in your afterward, you write about Derek Chauvin's murder of George, George Floyd. And you write, quote, during Derek Chauvin's murder trial, the defense attempted to propagate a false narrative that drug abuse was responsible to George Floyd's death And not the fact that Chauvin kneeled on his neck for 9 minutes and 29 seconds. They wanted the truth to die with Floyd. They essentially argued that Floyd killed himself as Chauvin engaged in routine police duty. Chauvin wanted the authority to kill without being held responsible for murder. This was the master-slave dialectic in the courtroom. And despite the vulgarity of Chauvin's defense, the American public had little confidence that he would be found guilty. In America's white versus black ethnocidal culture, it is rare for a police officer to be found guilty of killing a black American, regardless of the veracity of the evidence. America knows that the survival of truth is a rarity in our society. Chauvin being found guilty has given America hope that we may be able to escape our ethnocidal hell and save our collective soul, end quote. And you know, I apologize for my, my skeptical view, but I, I tell my students that skepticism does not necessarily equate to pessimism. And it's important to see what is being confronted for what it is. Thus, I have to ask you, unless or until such punishment deters the murder of Black Americans, is, quote unquote, justice after the fact still an element of an ethnocidal society, one in which Black Americans are still dying at the hands of the police, even if there is some form of subsequent accountability?
0: Yeah, so that's that's a great, great question. And, you know, I say for every society, you want to have justice in it. There's no, there's no denying that you want to have justice within your society. The question then becomes, is there an authenticity to the structure? And if, if the 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 structure that we have in the U.S. is more or less that the expectation is that you may be unfairly terrorized during your lifetime, and then uh, your the bereaved family members could be compensated financially after the fact. You can see that that's you know, not a, an equitable exchange. That's, that's just uh, a structure that aspires to essentially cover up or excuse terror with money. So it's not that getting justice after the fact is problematic. It's just that if that's the expectation that there won't be justice before the fact, there won't be structures to prevent, um, you know, these, uh, these atrocities or like domestic terror, then now we have a really profound problem. And I, so I think, you know, the question for America is, yes, we need to make sure that's why we have laws and courts, is the idea that you can have justice before. That's why police are supposed to protect you and not terrorize you. And this is, this is just a, 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 a responsible, humane balance to try to uh, cultivate as a society. And so I, I think the, the key thing is, yeah, if, if, if the norm, which disproportionately impacts people of color, is that you get justice after your family member uh, or loved one has been unjustly murdered, well, no, that's clearly never going to create a just society. We have to make sure that we have the structures that prevent that terror from, uh, from occurring if we are to live in a in a just society, and so so yeah,
1: thanks, Fer. And uh, I'm going to now go back to something that you talked about in uh, your response to the first question, uh, which relates to uh, you know genocide studies. Uh, you know, it's a field that I'm a part of, and that I've done some uh, sort of assessment of what's being studied and what's not being studied. And you know, uh, as it's been pointed out recently, including by Alex Hinton, who I was able to interview about his new book, "It Can Happen Here." The 1951 We Charge Genocide petition to the U.N. has largely been ignored in genocide studies. When you were doing your research, were you surprised at all by how little there is in the genocide studies literature about the transatlantic uh, trade in people forced into slavery and the broader history of murder, violence and oppression against black Americans?
0: Uh, No, as a matter of fact, I wasn't surprised at all. I I didn't really have any expectation, to be honest, that this would be a, a vibrant conversation. Um, and so sorry about that. Um, so, so no, I wasn't surprised at all. I didn't expect this to there to be a vibrant conversation at all pertaining to uh, African Americans within the genocide studies and our experiences in the US, because you have to recognize who's writing the narrative. Uh, like, you know, America foundationally, there are some very troubling uh, you know, roots to the origin of this country, and historically, during my lifetime, especially whenever someone tries to broach a topic that could present America in in a in a light that's anything but positive, even like a neutral yeah. <laughs> uh, perspective, um, is is viewed negatively. And so, if America started talking about the treatment to African Americans, um, to indigenous people, you know, in the 1950s, during Jim Crow, there's really, I, I really had no expectation that they would have the capacity to do that. That, you know, that was essentially during the middle of a, an American apartheid. Um, so no, I, I didn't have any expectation that America would have this conversation. Um, I will say, But I do definitely think that there are some Americans who really would like to have this conversation and would really, and maybe there are Americans in the the 1950s, I I clearly wasn't alive then, that would have liked to have this conversation. But if you have the absence of language, like precise language to have it, then it makes it difficult for you to have the conversation you want to have. You know, like genocide is a brand new word. That's 1944, that's very short in the lifetime of most of the words that we know. Um, so you have to think about it. In the 1940s, there could have been people like Raphael Lemkin who would like to have talked about the atrocities happening across Europe, and they were unsuccessful at having these conversations because the word genocide didn't exist. I'd say the same dynamic probably uh, exists in the U.S., where due to the fact that ethnocide didn't exist and that genocide clearly is something that you, we can apply to the experience of indigenous people. But once you start talking about like residential school systems and all these other types of oppression, um, now that's getting more into ethnocide, which now speaks a lot to the African American ex- perspective and it speaks to a lot of the cultural destruction that's become normalized in the U S. And so there's, so no, I had no expectation, uh, but it's not necessarily due to people not having a, an emotional interest in having the conversation, but if you don't have the words to to converse, then you really can't converse that well.
1: Right. And I mean I think that's another reason why your book is so important is it's in in that way sort of an intervention. I, there's been an increase in the literature of talking about cultural genocide and ethnocide against indigenous peoples, you know, after you know the physical destruction of ninety plus percent. Um that you're now using these terms to discuss uh, the treatment and the experience of, of Black Americans, and I think that's very important. Um, and you, you brought up Lemkin, uh, which we'll, we'll get a little into in a moment here, um, just about you know his use or lack thereof of the term uh, genocide to apply to the Black American experience. Um, and before we get into that, I want to read a- another excerpt from your book. Quote. When I first struggled to define and name the world I experienced, I was not able to apply Lemkin's ethnocide to help make sense of things. I went on my own linguistic journey and formulated a word that, unbeknownst to me, already existed. Despite this, my application represents an extension of Lemkin's ideas into an environment in which he lived, but inadequately explored. In the South, at the segregated restrooms, he looked ethnocide in the face, but could not see it. I do not begrudge him for his lack of vision. He spent the rest of his life withstanding social ridicule and poverty to codify genocide with international law. In the footnotes of his work, he left a clue for explaining an America he never sufficiently understood, that never embraced his brilliance, via a word that can empower oppressed people in America today and see through America's facade. The idea of ethnocide redefined my work as a journalist discussing race, culture, and politics in America. As a Black man in America who has taught Western ideas, my task for understanding my environment will always consist of incorporating European ideas, factoring in their, factoring in their ignorance of the lives of Black people, and modifying these ideas so that they can become applicable to my existence. Wemkin is one of many great European men whose ideas require this type of recalibration. So can you talk uh, about your journey and how it brought you to the point at which you wrote this book?
0: Yeah, so I'd say my journey... Specifically around around the twenty the twenty twelve election, I believe, um, for the Trump the the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So it, I think it's twenty sixteen now. Like, what I'm talking about. Um, I became an opinion columnist, opinion writer for the Daily Beast, and I had an opportunity to write my opinion out there in the public for general consumption. And upon doing that, I it became evident that what I was trying to say wasn't resonating as well as I wanted it to. It wasn't that my articles weren't getting well read and popular or whatnot. They were. But it was like the feedback I would get from from readers was that they were missing like key points that I was trying to get across. And I thought this was just so bizarre. And so over many, many articles, I would refine and try to say the same thing, but in a different way. And eventually it just hit me that maybe there just isn't the language, the words to talk about what I'm saying. And that instead of me trying to dedicate a whole paragraph to say something, maybe I could articulate it in just one word and that could be more precise. And so I began thinking about how I saw things slightly differently than, than other Americans, I, I believe. and And the distinction came from that I didn't view our racial differences according to race. I saw them as an expression of culture and culture and race is a that's a key distinction because culture is something that you create you know that's that's that requires effort consistent effort um race is just an arbitrary classification that uh in in the u.s context that's been stamped on people by colonizers essentially and so one of them you are you are empowered which is your culture and the other one, you're kind of disempowered because of a race where it's just fixed. And that's when I really started to explore ethnocide, where it became a a conversation about the destruction of culture and then that destruction of culture. Colonizers then created these racial classifications where, you know, white people were the ones who had the power to destroy somebody else's culture, and non-white people were the people whose culture were getting destroyed so that they could, Exists in a perpetually exploitative society and so that's my journey in like in a concise form where by trying to have conversations with readers and articulate things that i thought were important from my vantage point um i noticed something quite different and then and then I'll, I'll, i'll i'll continue with this it's it's kind of funny when i became an opinion writer it was like everyone says they have opinions and that's, that's great. Um, but it's really weird when someone says that they want you to write about your opinion a lot, because then you be like, what makes my perspectives unique? Like what, why, why am I better at this than somebody else? It's not like I have a specific degree. And like a lot of people have journalism degrees and poli-sci degrees. So I was quite curious as to why I saw uh, America's division along a cultural And not a racial divide and perspective and 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 i mentioned this in the book but i remember when i was a kid in elementary school and racism really like i noticed it it was a real thing um i noticed that amongst my friends i responded to racism differently like a lot of my black friends they took a perspective of, you know, white people are horrible. I don't want to hang out with white people because they're just racist. And I totally understand that perspective when you are be racism is being inflicted upon you. And then there's other people that are like these white people, are my friends, what can I do to stay their friend? And they would took that vantage point. I just naturally didn't do either one of those. The thing that made sense to me is I just thought I didn't pick to live here. I didn't pick who my parents are. I didn't pick what I look like. So the idea that someone could make like a definitive judgment about my character and decide to exclude me or include me into things because of stuff I had nothing to do with meant that they just had the power to make arbitrary decisions whenever they wanted to. And so it wouldn't make any sense for me to invest a lot of time to do anything based off of their decisions, because their decisions didn't need to be founded or based, in fact, at all, it was just arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've seen things for as long as I can really remember. Um, And I didn't think that was that unique until I was tasked with uh, writing my perspective. And then it it appeared as though a lot of people didn't have that perspective. And so then that kind of created the need to Expand on this more, and the book came out of that. And you know, many ways, this book is just how I've seen the world and using the language that I think can as uh, clearly articulate it to other people.
1: Thanks, Baron. I think, um, that can also be a, a good exercise in, in empathy is thinking about you know how arbitrary you know things are, or how we became how we came into sort of particular existences. Um, I'm, I actually do an exercise, uh, with the students sometimes to try and give them an opportunity to try and think about being in, in someone else's position. Um, now I, am going to ask you, I guess this could be about the third time, a, a question that is similar to, you know, previous two about, uh, why Americans don't think about the black experience through a genocide lens, why in genocide studies, and now turning to, to Raphael Lemkin for a moment, um, And it's another, did you find yourself disappointed question, but were you disappointed at Lemkin's failure to speak uh, more to the treatment of Black Americans, especially within the scope of genocide? Um, And of course, historical context, there is the United States was sort of reluctant uh, to support the Genocide Convention, argued for the uh, omission of, uh, of cultural genocide and so on. But can pragmatism, such as keeping the U.S. engaged with and supportive of the law against genocide and holding a principled stance, in this case, as it relates to the treatment of Black Americans coexist?
0: So, I I guess I'd say, so, no, I wasn't disappointed in Lemkin's failure to speak because, like, he's from Poland, and he grew up in an environment that didn't have, I assume, that many Black people in it. And so, he's learning brand new about something that. I know intimately, but I also don't know the dynamics of living in Poland either. And I don't, I'm not an expert on the Jewish experience. So like there has to be like a level of humility and understanding the ignorance that a lot of people have in topics that they just not due to them being bad people per se, but just not being immersed in it. And I, you know, one of the telling things about Lemkin, uh, and he talked about this in his book. It's just the sheer size of America. Like a lot of Europeans don't get how big America is. And a lot of Americans don't grasp how small Europe is. And so, you know, when someone decided to just think about it, he, he wanted to take a train from Seattle to North Carolina. That's absurd. That's going to take a long time. But if you live in Europe, the idea of taking a train, that's what you would do. And so not only did he not know about the experience of the black people in the South, he just didn't know how big America was. There's so many things about this country that he just didn't know because he's not from here. That makes sense. I I, I do think America suffers from this weird expectation that white people are just like naturally good at all sorts of things. And I, I don't get that. Like, I remember when I was in in high school or in elementary school, middle school, whenever it was Black History Month, they'd always, the the teacher or classmates would always look at me and expect me to tell them stuff about Black history because they don't know anything. And the response that, like, amongst my Black friends would always be expressing frustrations about this. They really, we all, they'd say how they feel, felt bad and it was just, like, annoying that everyone would look at them and ask them to like explain stuff and you know they and I and I would always reply I know that's frustrating but they don't know anything like we live in Georgia this whole society has been based around dividing black people and white people at every facet of existence they don't know anything and I don't know why we expect them to know stuff about this so like is there like some weird expectation that we have that like white Americans or European people just have knowledge about stuff that they've never actually been around or experienced and that we should be surprised when they ask really stupid questions about stuff they don't know, even smart people, like, I don't get it. And so Lemkin was brilliant in the field that he was brilliant at. And I think we need to respect that and appreciate it. And he understood that he didn't know everything about the black experience. And just like any person who's empathetic, when you, ask someone a question and you see that that question makes someone feel bad and you put them in a in a, in a you know it, it didn't go how you want he felt bad about that time when he was in the south and he asked a question about segregated restrooms and it's like yeah he didn't know that's expected and so i i think we need to understand like the level of ignorance that white america has encouraged you know, white Americans and countless other Americans to have regarding the experience of non-white people in our society, and you know, to a certain extent, that's clearly someone's fault if they want to, you know, revel in that ignorance. But you know, we all are ignorant to plenty of things, and that's not necessarily malicious. Um, it can become malicious if we don't have a desire to learn and become better people. But Blumkin mm-hmm. looked like a person who wanted to learn and become a better person, make other people's lives better. So. I don't don't have a problem with it. I I guess what I'd say to the to the last question regarding pragmatism and a principled stance, I guess it just depends on what you define as pragmatic and principled. Like I'd be can we say America's had a principled stance regarding the treatment of people of color like ever? I don't really think we could say that, but we definitely like to say that we have Um, and you know, America's notions of pragmatism Clearly come from a, like a white American perspective that didn't incorporate indigenous or, or, or views of other people. So like is our ideas that exclude the people who have lived on the continent from the, like the, the beginning and the millions of people that were forced to live here, is, is having a perspective that excludes all of them actually pragmatic? I don't think so. So I think we kind of have to have a greater examination of those key ideas to then even be able to entertain if we could, we could do them.
1: Thanks, Baird. And, uh, just a, a a quick note about what you're saying about Lemkin, which, uh, it's, it's, it's easy, I think in 2021 to forget how slow the, uh, you know, the, the, the process of sharing information was, uh, now everything seems like it's right at our fingertips. And, um, I don't even think about, you know, growing up where I didn't have, uh, this easy access to information. So, um, yeah, so sorry, go on.
0: And, and one last thing to talk about Lemkin, like a great thing to, to consider is he spoke so many languages and he spoke mm-hmm. a lot of languages because the part of Europe in which he lived in was an intersection of so many different cultures. So like his fluency with other cultures is there and that was a key part of his work and that's based on the environment in which he lived like i think americans think it makes sense for a place as the size of a continent for everyone to speak the same language and it all be just like this homogenous you know monolithic thing but that's not how most of the world has ever existed and so when we have this disc- this dial this this discourse where we think everything's the same on a place that's as big as America. We think that it becomes really easy for someone in Seattle or New York or Chicago to have a really clear idea of what life is like in the South during Jim Crow. And no, you don't like Alabama's the size of England. We're talking a place that very well, if it was an Island, would be considered its own continent that has a, a way of life that many parts of the world could not even imagine trying to like live in that fashion, and so you know I I think that's a, a key thing. Lemkin's a person who uh, had a profound amounts of empathy in the areas in which he lived. He spent a lot of time learning about it. But America is gigantic, and expecting a guy, an impoverished guy in New York who speaks multiple languages and is doing work to change the world, to also have an intimate knowledge of the structures of the South that have been in place for hundreds of years, I, I, I think that's a false expectation.
1: Agreed. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. Um And, you know, culture has come up. Uh, and before, uh, earlier in our conversation, you defined ethnocide, um, but people have different understandings about what culture is. Can you tell us um, how you're defining culture in your book and then also uh, what you mean by um, to be the ethnocider uh, and the ethnocidee?
0: Yeah. So for me, culture is essentially a group of people in a specific place creating things that they need to survive. And so, you know, that's why uh, the culture in a warm place is different than the culture in a cold place. You know, the words you need to make to articulate the environment in which you live, those can be different. Because the environment's different. The food you're gonna make is different. The clothes you're gonna make is different. All of that's going to be different. And then within that, that foundational culture, yeah, there'll be other like cultural, like subcultures and whatnot and, and groups, but basically people come together to make things that can sustain them. And that also includes music and art and all those things that can help give life meaning and not just, you know daily drudgery to survive where like you have to create that so culture at a foundational level is just people in a particular place trying to figure out the ways that they can survive in perpetuity and off you go um and so that's how i view culture when we're talking about an ethnocidal culture um which is the u.s it's really we're talking about the inversion of culture it just is hard to articulate because we don't have a word for the opposite of culture. <laughs> so we now have this weird dynamic where uh the it, one thing and its opposite we use the same word to describe it. But you know in an ethnocidal society the people that are there don't really have an attachment to the place. Like the US is a great example. Like white people in America, they don't live in a place called white. If you go to China, People that live there—they're Chinese, Japan, Japanese. You know, uh, the same thing throughout Europe, where the name that the people came up with to define themselves and their culture has an attachment to the physical place in which they live and the sustainable practices that they are creating to try to live there forever. The U.S. doesn't have it. The U.S. has people who have a particular name that gives them power within the society, and then they—they they, then they name other people so that they can oppress those people and now it exists in an unsustainable exploitative divided way and you can see how that impacts our society to this day where america's relationship with our environment is more driven by generating profit from how we interact with the earth and not making sure that the earth is sustainable and nurturing and healthy you know, the, the divisions that America creates to ensure that black and white people are, are divided pertain to housing and education and funding and, you know, all sorts of stuff that are foundational to everything. And so when you're talking in this ethnocidal society, which is based around division and a lack of an attachment to place, we're really talking about the absence of culture. We just haven't come up with the word that is the opposite of culture. Within this dynamic, the ethnocider is the term I use for the, for the group of people who are there to create that division, sustain the division and exploit people and the environment. And the ethnocidee is the group of people who have been forced to live in that environment and suffer um, that exploitation. Uh, intriguingly, the ethnocidee have to figure out a way to survive that's not based on exploitation. And so what they end up creating is the closest thing to culture within this found this dynamic because they can't extract the culture from another group of people that survive. They have to find a way to live off of the land that they are afforded. And then next thing you know, they create music and art and all sorts of stuff to help them persevere through perpetual, sustained, you know, almost inescapable oppression. And um, you can see that in many ways of the The cultural impact that African-Americans have had on American society and America's desire to uh, profit off of that without African-Americans getting an equitable distribution of that profit. (laughs) So, So, yeah. That relates to a, another excerpt from your
1: book that I, I wanted to read for our listeners. Quote, the end goal of ethnocide, despite the ethnocider's myopia, is the destruction of the ethnocider and the ethnocidee, as the ethnocider wages a perpetual war against existence. As the ethnocidee, the goal must be, always, must be to always reach America's cultural pantheon, continue to tell the true story of your people, and then profess a new American narrative that exists, exists beyond the shackles of ethnocidal oppression. They must embrace, defend, and fight for existence. Articulating the post-ethnocidal narrative is the most difficult obstacle because America only knows ethnocide. How do you articulate the necessity of a world that Americans have never lived and struggle to even imagine? If you have only known an abusive relationship, it may be easy to articulate the need for the abuse to stop, but it is much harder to imagine, create, and sustain a relationship without abuse. One has to emancipate oneself from abuse, and this applies to both the abuser and the abused, yet the onus normally falls upon the abused to instigate change. This is the dilemma of the ethnocidee. In addition to creating a culture that they can be proud of within ethnocide, there's also a greater need to create a culture that can exist beyond ethnocide. The journey toward a post-ethnocidal existence has always been shaped by the lives and identity of African diaspora people. Through understanding the American cycle, it becomes clear how America's brief eras of reconstruction play a decisive role in co- cultivating a post-ethnocidal society. So within that, and what you've already uh, said to the previous question, where did things like cultural assimilation, appropriation, and other types of melding and exploitation come into play concerning emancipation for both the abused and the abuser and the journey toward a post-ethnocidal existence?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So like, one thing, and this makes it complicated, is colonizers, the ethnocider in, in this discourse, like, white Americans created a, an identity that's zero-sum, that there's no lateral movement. It's either you are white or you're not. And You know, you there are people in America that they'll do, like, an ancestry test and find out that generations ago they had something in them that wasn't white, and now they question if they're even white today, you know, that they've been living a lie. And so when you have a, a, a culture in your society that sharing equates to erasure, that makes it really hard to create new culture while keeping, you know, uh, whiteness as we know it. It just becomes, you know, the, 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 that becomes a very hard thing to do. And that's where we get to conversations about assimilation and appropriation, where what America has always emphasized people doing is try to assimilate into the dominant white culture. But that's impossible unless you're already white in appearance. So assimilation becomes problematic because America creates a dynamic where it's actually impossible to do. Um, Appropriation becomes a problem. Because what you're going to do, what will happen in American society is the narrative will be to take somebody else's culture and then to make it into the dominant culture, which is, uh, you know, an ethnocidal one. And that will be taking it from another group and not having an equitable exchange with them where it's exploitative. And so appropriation is is problematic because it's exploitative, you know. And then if you're talking about other types of melding, America doesn't have a narrative where whiteness melds. Like we do say that it melds with other groups who are already white. So it would be like, you know, Italians and Irish and these different type of Europeans may have a culture clash uh, because they eat different food and, you know, something like that. But at the end of the day, they'll just make another type of white. But The default is a European appearance. And so what America is tasked with is a narrative where sharing and equality isn't a foundational idea, even though we like to say that it is. And so when it comes to cultural assimilation, appropriation, it's because we have an ethnocidal narrative that we don't understand as ethnocidal. So what my organization, what we try to do is uh, we use the language of cultural appreciation where like for example like day of the dead is a great example of this where this this mexican tradition of creating altars to remember your your ancestors is quite big in mexico and it's growing in the US but one of the larger fears for the US is that when uh, white americans use it they'll copy mexican culture well they'll they'll direct, they'll decorate their house as if they're Mexican so that they can now talk about their white ancestors, which when you say it out loud, you can see how like absurd that is, but that's due to like an absence of a culture and the presence of a culture that's dependent on extracting somebody else's culture as like a a life-giving force. Um, At the same time, American culture is very geared towards getting somebody else's culture and finding a way to monetize that for the benefit of white Americans. And so next thing you know, there'll be, you know, los Muertos beer and stuff that Coors and Bush are putting out and stuff like that. And now it just becomes like this big meaningless party that has lost, you know, the meaning that attracted people in the first place and it's exchange meaning for money. And that becomes a a very big problem. Um, So what I recommend, what I try to do is cultural appreciation. Whereas an African-American, I have the complete inverse dynamic. I know if I if, if a black person has a child with anybody, that person's gonna be black, but they'll also be black in that other thing. They'll be black and Asian, black and Latino, black and this, black and that. It, there won't be any erasure of their blackness. They have one drop of it. So that blackness is there forever. Um, and so now it, it opens a door to creating a conversation about appreciating somebody else's culture and bringing it into your culture in a shared equitable fashion to make something new. And so I think this is one of the things that can happen when the conversation is shifted from one that like derives from a a white uh, ethnocider perspective to one that is empowering uh, the ethnocidy. And then Thanks, that oh, as you create culture, real quick, sorry. And then <laughs> as you create culture, that then creates a foundation for countering a society that's based around the destruction of culture. And that's how you can get to a post-ethnocidal uh way of life.
1: Thanks, Barr. Sorry for interrupting. I, I just uh you know, what you were saying about uh the you know beer and other things just made me, you know, think of how anything that can be commodified for sale will be commodified. Um but also, in in your book, you you talk about your personal experience with the Day of the Dead, um, and then a festival that has grown out of that experience. Can you can you tell our listeners a bit about that?
0: Yeah. So um, my my partner in D.C. She's Mexican American, and you know when we first started dating, I I didn't really have much exposure to the Latino community in D.C. And so you know going to all sorts of parties and you know hanging out with people, and I'm like the only black person in the room, which is fine. That's great, you know? Um, and then Day of the Dead came around and we went to someone's house and next, thing you know, people had all sorts of face paint on and there was an altar and everything. And I didn't get it at all. I did. It didn't make any sense. I, I thought this was bizarre, but like these people are my friends and it doesn't make any sense for me to give some flippant judgment on their culture based on me being ignorant and uncomfortable in a room filled with my friends. So it just made sense to be humble, be a little patient and start observing what's really going on and not have like some knee jerk reaction to something that's that's foreign, but completely not threatening at all. Um, and then from that, it allowed me to see how this is really something quite beautiful that I felt that the black community specifically could benefit from. Uh, and a light bulb went off at the, my first Day of the Dead gathering is that this reminded me of Black Lives Matter and how after someone like uh, Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown, Eric Garner passed away, the Black community would make an altar to remember that person. But this created an opportunity to proactively remember our culture. And it made me think about how if we're creating structures as Black people to cope with the trauma of American ethnocidal terror in a response are we creating something that can liberate ourselves from it or are we just creating something that allows us to survive within the terror and i thought this proactive opportunity could give us an opportunity to transcend this ethnocidal structure and this kind of goes back to your earlier question about uh, about justice in the courts where if you if if what justice is is some sort of some salve to heal after the terror. That's clearly not going to transcend the problem. It's just going to give you something to hopefully let you survive while the terror continues. You know, this is the same type of thing, but in a in a more cultural uh, manner, not something explicitly related to law enforcement or the courts or policy. Um, and so, from this idea. I committed myself to trying to create a multicultural or a cross-cultural festival that gave people of color and also white Americans the opportunity to create authentic altars that spoke to our cultural experience. And if you know you know my altar as an African American with my partner, like that's actually something new. Like there aren't, you know as Mexican Americans, they were making uniquely Mexican. Uh, (laughs) alters. Now we are throwing in African-American history and culture into the space. And now these alters are different. So as America becomes more and more diverse, we're going to need this cross-cultural ancestor cultural remembrance in a proactive way to help us heal from the trauma, generational trauma that ethnocide has inflicted upon people, but also give us a, a, a foundation for coming together in a proactive way that can hopefully change the narrative. And since it's an annual tradition, you can, you know, it's, it can continue. It's not something that you do once a year and you say, oh, great, that festival is awesome. You know, maybe we'll do it again later. It's like, nope, we're doing it this year, we're doing it next year, we're doing it all over the years. And so having this proactive awareness, I think is quite significant if you're trying to create a sustainable cultural shift that's healthy and peaceful and equitable and so so yeah
1: thanks thanks for that. and and agreed and um you know I'll, I'll give you a chance to talk a little bit more about that um as we wrap up um you know but as we do come to close i want to share the final words of your book uh quote as we cultivate evtopia it is inevitable that some entity will challenge the importance of doing good and sustaining life because it will always be much easier to do bad and destroy life. The wisdom of Evtopia should always provide a response that justifies the necessity of sustaining and nurturing existence. Evtopia helps us ask the right questions so that we can find the answers to help support a sustainable, nurturing existence." End quote. I found this to be a very, very powerful closing because I, I read it as taking the power uh, from those who want to do bad and destroy. Uh, can you talk uh, about what distinguishes Evtopia from Utopia, and um, if you uh, if you want more about the work you're doing at the Sustainable Culture Lab?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, Utopia—the crazy thing about it is most people don't know what the word actually means. Like we talk about Utopia as this idyllic, perfect place, but the word means non-existent good place, and so you have to really take a beat and think about if your society's word for perfect place actually means non-existent good place. Is your society even capable of making good places? Because if you don't have the word for it, how can you even articulate it, let alone make it? And so utopia is just, it means the opposite of what we think it means. And that's a pretty profound problem. And so what we did Uh, At the Sustainable Culture Lab and what I mentioned in the book is we feel that there's a need to at least have a word that means good place. And so we just made one. And evtopia means good place. And how utopia is constructed, EU in uh, Greek means good. OU in Greek means non-existent. So uh, Thomas More took off the E and the O and just put the U on topia, which means place to make non-existent good place. So we just put the EU on topia. Uh, and EU in Greek is pronounced, uh, the V is pronounced as a V. So instead of U, it's Ev. And so Evtopia is a is a good place. And we articulate it as a nurturing, sustainable, good place. Um, and then the question becomes, what is that? And now we're talking about a practical good place and the effort that you have to exert to sustain it and not some idyllic perfect place that's on the other side of the horizon that if you get there you just get to live in perfection with like a passive relationship to your to your world. Eftopia is an active relationship where you sustain and nurture and cultivate a good place and a key way to do that is you have to continually ask questions like existence isn't static. You have to figure out how to keep on sustaining life in a way that's good and nurturing. Um, and that requires a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. Um, and you know, a great example is like, if I, if someone makes like a, a ceramic bowl that could take them, you know, a day or so to make. And if they do a good job at it, people could eat out of that bowl for you know, 30 years if the if it's well if it's well made enough. But if I walk over to that bowl and I'm careless or just mad and I pick it up and smash it, that took me 2 seconds. And now we have to see if it's even possible to pick up the pieces and put that bowl back together and make it functional. And so we all know that destroying something is way easier than creating and sustaining something. So it's always going to be easier to create bad places. Um, And we have to cultivate the language that gives us the wisdom to sustain good places. And Eftopia aspires to do that. Utopia is a word that doesn't really mean anything. Um, And it's a place that doesn't actually exist. It's one that we want to find. um, And people try to say that it's a place that we can create, but that doesn't make any sense considering that the words means non-existent good place. How can you create a place that doesn't exist? Um, Or non-existent good place actually means, maybe that means bad place. And so why would you create a place that's bad? Um, And so that's like a key distinction between evtopia and utopia. Uh, The goal is to empower people with the language to make a better society. And that also includes being able to identify. That also includes being able to identify uh, the words that are problematic. So with my work at the Sustainable Culture Lab, it's kind of it's fascinating. Once I began writing this book and conversing with people, they felt it made sense for me to try to launch an organization that could test out this these ideas and could have conversations and foster community and expand on it where the limitation isn't just a book that articulates it, where the book becomes the launching pad for the, the, the impact and the change that we hope to create. And so at the Sustainable Culture Lab, our, our, our recent, our, our latest slogan is creating the language for change. Um, because once you start with the words, then you can have the philosophy And now if people can say the right things and think the right things, it makes it easier for them to consistently act in nurturing sustainable ways. And, you know, that's the core concept of the the organization. So we are developing trainings. We have a a newsletter uh, called The Word that we send out every Sunday at 11 a.m. that gives people a new word every week to help, you know, Empower them to more accurately articulate their their environment and enhance their perspective. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of stuff. We prior to COVID we had monthly gatherings, and you know, hopefully, with uh, as we get more under control with COVID, we can bring those back. But we're figuring out all sorts of ways to foster culture and community and and uh, create an, an environment that can make our society uh, a, a more utopian. Unless less ethnocidal place and our altars festival is one of those things our, our annual altars festival which is happening um starting october 22nd um of this year where we get artists to make altars so that people can see these altars and be inspired to make altars where they are appreciating uh the good things about their culture and appreciating other people's culture and they can they can understand how to do it without appropriating um, other people's culture as we create a more shared, common, equitable community.
1: Thank you, Barry. Uh, I've really en- enjoyed our, our conversation. In some ways it was um, sort of in the same frame uh, as, as, you know, my, maybe my usual podcast, but in other ways is very different, especially with this uh, sort of philosoph- philosophical, philosophical uh, element Um if i correct me if i'm wrong i just want to direct our, our listeners to uh, the right place they can find this information on at scl.community is that uh, the whole address
0: yep that's the whole address we 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 don't want to position ourselves as a as a company you know we have to, you have to like generate revenue to survive but we want people to know that it's a community first that the value is on people first and not a company first and then people second so yeah it's scl.community instead of .com.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's nice and easy for you all, listeners, to, to remember SCL.community. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for your time. Break um, right before we let you go, is there, is there anything else you're, you're currently working on uh, that the listeners should keep their eye out for?
0: I, I'd say the key thing is you can look out for the Altars Festival. That's on our website too. You can check that out. Uh, but my book comes out October 12th and it's available for pre-orders. So please uh, purchase my book and you can learn more about uh, my work through that.
1: All right. Well, thanks again, Barrett. Um, And uh, and take care and, and we'll be in touch.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much.